Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us for Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. That would be me. Appreciate you picking this radio show. Uh, only another week to go. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm Interim Pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. Come join us, 1030, every Sunday morning. If you don't have a church home, we'd be glad to have you. Okay, the question is, how many people does it take to get me able to have a radio show out of my dining room? and uh, Or something like a radio show. It's not actually going to be on the radio. Uh, it's going to be online. The whole thing's moving to online. Apparently, it takes a village. Um, got somebody coming over Saturday. We're going to try again to get everything set up. So... We'll see how that works. His radio talk, 919-897, is uh, going to cease being talk radio a week from tomorrow. Gary Miller will be retiring, and uh, we will be um, without the talk radio portion here. There will be music playing starting April 1st. And April 3rd, you'll be able to listen to this program live on Facebook, and we'll also be streaming a couple of other places hopefully YouTube and um, uh, Rumble, and then we'll also be on the website. So the website's drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. And uh, you'll, I mean, it's up now. You can see it. Not a whole lot of interaction yet, but it's it's up there, so you can take a look at it. The new show is going to be called Truth in uh, Politics and Culture. So we hope you'll Give us a try. If you've been listening for a lot of years, uh, you can listen from 7.30 to 8.30 live, I'm assuming, if I can get all that done Saturday. And um, I'll have an update for you next week, and then we'll have the podcast that will be available. So um, looking forward to all that. It's going to be a big change, but uh, it's what life is about. If you live long enough, stuff changes. You just have to roll with it. So that's what we're going to do. Um, okay, the numbers are out from DHEC, they track the number of abortions month to month in South Carolina. And as you can imagine, uh, they're pretty horrifying if you believe that life is precious and that it should be protected in the womb. In January, we had 983 abortions in South Carolina. In February, we had 986. And you may say, well, gee, that, that's only three more. Yeah, but February is a short month, remember. Uh, so only 28 days. So we were three days short. I mean, three more days of abortions would have pumped that number up over a thousand. We have no doubt that March is going to show that we're having over a thousand abortions a month, which is what I predict. I predicted. I and mean, we've been talking about that and I've been saying we're going to have a thousand or so a month. And that's exactly what's what we're looking at. So total this year so far, we've had 1,969 abortions. We're on track to hit 12,000. We haven't been at 12,000 abortions in South Carolina since 1991. 
Now, for a little bit of contrast, if you remember when Roe versus Wade was overturned, the heartbeat bill was reinstated until the lawsuit set it aside and it had to go to the South Carolina Supreme Court where it was, it, the, it was struck down uh, back in January. But if you look at the numbers in July of 2022, it was 204. So that just gives you a little contrast. 986 in February, February, 204 under the heartbeat bill. Now, was, is 204 too many? Of course. But we would drop down under the heartbeat bill, you know, the lowest abortion total we've had so far. We've been under 5,000. We've been in the, I think, about 4,800 territory. But under the heartbeat bill, if those numbers held, we could be around 2,000, which is still too many babies losing their lives in the womb. I get it. I'm not in favor of any baby being aborted. So I want to be clear about that. But I'm certainly not in favor of having abortion numbers taking us back to 1991 when we had over 12,000 a year. And that's, that's exactly where we're headed. So I, I, would just, I would just sort of like to remind everybody, you know, we're the, right now the Senate and the House leadership are talking to each other. Now, does that mean anything's going to happen? Does it mean a compromise is going to be reached? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that they're communicating. It means that it's a small step forward. It means that before there can be a compromise or there can be some kind of way forward on abortion, they have to talk to each other. So that's at least taking place. And I would just encourage you to pray about that, that you would pray that uh, God would touch their hearts and that they would be able to see a path forward um, we're kind of waiting to hear, as far as the activists, the pro-life community, we're, we're waiting to hear what, the, what is said by uh, the leaders once they have this conversation. You know, um, I, we, we've generated, and thanks to South Carolina Citizens for Life, which they have an amazing communication tool. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those really powerful political tools that allows you to go into districts and to send messages to specific senators or House members. And those messages that have been sent by um, South Carolina Citizens for Life, backed up by all of the One Message partners, South Carolina Catholic, Catholic Diocese, the South Carolina Baptist Office of Public Policy, South, South Carolina Convention, um, the you know, Palmetto Family, um, and, and, and other organizations that that support strongly support a pro-life stand. We've we've all put our moniker on these letters that are going out, and they don't make any difference. I mean, I you know I've been told uh, directly that the senators don't care. I mean, I, I it it blows my mind that I'll hear statements like, "Well, we're we're getting pummeled with Planned Parenthood calls," and yet now they're getting pummeled with letters, emails. Uh, phone calls from pro-life, the pro-life community. What, why are they not saying, are they saying that to Planned Parenthood? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. And look, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. Don't Please don't get me wrong. I, I'm just saying I'm trying to understand the rules here. Either calls and letters matter or they don't. And if they don't matter on one side, I, I don't understand why they don't matter on the other side. 
Now, there are a couple of bills that are coming up before the Medical Affairs Subcommittee of the Senate this morning. At 9 o'clock, they're going to take testimony on um, uh, bills that would prohibit uh, pronouns that are not um, correct based on biology, a uh, bill that would change birth certificate. Uh, you, you can't go and change your birth certificate from your biological gender to the gender of your choice. It would, pre- it would prevent you from doing that. Um, and then the other one is the, the one that would basically take, um, you know, stop the hormone, cross-hormone treatments, puberty blockers, and transgender surgery for minors. So those, those are being kind of lumped together by medical affairs. And the testimony they're having today is being taken only by invitation. So you have to be invited to come to testify. Next week, I believe it's Wednesday, um, they're going to have testimony from anybody who signs up online. And it's also going to be at 9 o'clock in the morning, so I can't be there. I'm not going to miss uh, a show next week unless I just absolutely have to. So I'm going to write a letter and from the convention and, and submit it on my behalf. Personal testimony is better, but... Um, you know, I, I can't be there at nine o'clock, and when they do, schedule these things at nine o'clock, that's out of, that's out of the question for me. So unless I unless I miss the show, and I've already had to miss two shows this past week, Tuesday and Wednesday couldn't be helped. Um, so I'm hoping that I'm not going to have to miss any more before next Friday. Okay, uh, so that's what's going on. Don't know what's going to happen today with testimony, invited-only testimony. I don't have a list of the people who were invited to testify. I'm assuming today that that's medical uh, personnel, that kind of thing. So uh, if I find out anything about it, I'll report on it tomorrow to you as to what actually happened. Okay, Reggie's on the phone. Reggie, go ahead. Good morning. Y'all going to make this so hard playing uh, the Garmon Key. Uh, bumper music but a couple of questions on your upcoming show uh and i'm not sure of the technology will you ever take phone calls or anything or is that is that something that's this uh gone the way of the dodo i i probably am not going to take phone calls i'm not going to take them at the beginning i know uh it's possible i mean i can do interviews i understand um so you know that means that it's possible to use the phone to record um, an interview, which would make it seem like if I had a number I could put out there. But see, right now I'd have to put out my cell phone number, and people would right. use it to call in. And, and I'd, So I don't have any way to do that um, at the moment other than that. The show's only going to be an hour. It's going to be from 7.30 to 8.30. So uh, to fit a podcast format better, primarily, uh, most podcasts don't run longer than 55 minutes or so. And so I'm trying right. to fit that format to make the podcast more accessible um, and uh, to acknowledge people's shorter attention spans. So, um, y- y- you know, taking telephone calls on a podcast is not really the best either. Most people listen to podcasts because they want to hear topics, you know, by whoever's talking about them. So that's a long story to say um, no no telephone calls in the beginning. Right. Well, I, for one, I've made a lot of friends, and I've been with you for a long time, and going to sorely 
sorely miss uh, my mornings uh, with this and, and realize that I can still, but I, I miss the interaction. I, will, I will, will miss the interaction. I know it's changed and it has to happen, but, uh, but anyway, but I just wanted to, wanted to let you know, you know, that, uh, I mean, it goes without saying I'm the go-to guide impact for your, so I'm getting all these questions every time I walk in the door about yeah. what's happening, what's going to, what it's going to mean. And so there's a well, lot of people out there. Well, I, I appreciate that very much, Reggie. I do. I appreciate your support over the years and calling in and uh, our prayer times together and, and trying to help you walk through some challenges in your life. Um, and you've been right. very faithful to the program. We appreciate that. Uh, and I hope you'll right. keep listening. Uh, we're going to have something oh, well, on 730 and 830. So, so tell everybody to, to keep hanging in there. Okay, I sure will. Thank you, friend. Thanks so much. Yep, you have a good day. Um. All right. I thought I'd catch you up a little bit on where we are with President Trump. You know, Trump came out last week, made big news, actually, over the weekend while we we're having the Vision 24 conference down in Charleston. Trump came out, said he was going to be arrested on Tuesday, told everybody to protest it. Uh, you know, he didn't he didn't tell everybody to go in the streets. He didn't. Tell, of course, anytime the word protest comes out of the president's mouth, the media are going to take that and say, see, see, it's another January 6th. He's trying to gin up the crowd. It's just, um, it's foolish. Look, he, he, you know, do I, do I think Trump says and does everything exactly right? Nope, I don't. But there's nothing wrong with him saying, if, if you disagree with me being arrested on these charges that are really thin, then protest, let people know it. Um, he didn't call for anything other than that. So let's stay within the realm of truth in the, in the spirit of truth and politics and culture. So, um, but the indictment didn't come. There was a witness on Monday that pretty much blew Alvin Bragg's um, case out of the water. The grand jury was supposed to meet yesterday. They were, it was called off. They've been called in today. So we don't know what that means. Grand jury proceedings are secret. So we don't know if they're going to deliberate today, if charges are going to be presented today. Does Alvin Bragg have a witness that is going to be able to rebut the testimony of, of, of Costello, which was devastating? I mean, Robert Costello, a lawyer um, who appeared at the request of, of, of Trump's legal team, said he told the grand jury that former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, who made a $130,000 payment to Ms. Daniels, was an unreliable witness who, was, who, who told conflicting stories about the hush money payment. He said, in fact, he said that Cohen is on a revenge tour, that he's just trying to get back at Trump, that he's turned on him, and that, um, in fact, Costello said he was in a room where Cohen said that he paid that money out of a loan that he took out, and it had nothing to do with Trump. He didn't get the money from Trump. He says Cohen's lying about the whole thing. And so I'm sure Bragg was having to sort of regroup and figure out what he was going to do based on that testimony. Some have speculated that there won't be charges now because of Costello's testimony. I, I don't think that's the case. I think Alvin Bragg is in too deep. He's going to have to do something. 
And we'll see what happens today with the grand jury, whatever the grand jury does. Is he going to bring another witness? We don't know. Is he going to file charges, ask the grand jury to deliberate them as to what charges to bring against the president? Don't know that either. Okay, Philip, go ahead. Thanks for calling. Yes, good morning. To me, it's always been people in public office are like anyone else. Ultimately, they will always do what is in their best interest. The idea of statesmen and these types of people Back in the day when America was run by adults, by good thinking, by godly principles, yes. And this is why I don't believe that letters written to people will ever get anything changed, especially on this idea of abortion. If I'm a typical politician, and of course, I don't say this is all or many, I have no quantitative analysis. If I'm a typical politician, I say to myself, If I have any, in this culture, any hope of getting to any office, I can never, ever, ever be against this abortion uh, uh, obsession with people. And because of that, I think that they are willing to sell the babies and the bodies of children to keep running for office. This is just a flaw in human character since the fall. And unfortunately, that's my... Now, the people you know and the people I love, letters would mean something to them. But to the vast majority, I don't think it matters one whit. I wish it wasn't so, but that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, Philip, thanks. I I would just say this in, in addition to what Philip just said. That's also true for people, as Philip mentioned, that we do love and we do agree with. Um, I'll just throw out a name here because, um, you know, Larry Grooms, Senator Larry Grooms, he is a faithful pro-life senator. And no matter how many letters he gets from Planned Parenthood or how many calls or how much, you know, just evil stuff is thrown his way, uh, he's not going to change his mind because he is morally, personally, morally set on the fact that life begins at conception and deserves to be protected. So he's not going to be swayed. Uh, he would rather lose office than, you know, become, if, if it takes being pro-abortion to keep him in the Senate, he will no longer be in the Senate. Now, that's the real bottom line. Uh, Philip, you're right in terms of the number of letters that a, a senator or a representative gets, it doesn't bother them unless it indicates a trend in their district voting-wise. I mean, if they're getting letters from a lot of people in their district, which is these letters that have been generated are coming from these senators' districts. But the question is, and, and emails, the question is how many makes a difference? There's so many things that go into whether or not a senator um, is is going to change their mind about a topic or agree to follow their constituents. You know, I, I, I was in a meeting the other day where I raised the issue of representative government. And I basically said, look, you, we, we need to get back to the understanding that senators and representatives, there's a reason they're called representatives. They represent the people that put them in office. And so when those people express their opinions, in, uh, particularly in large numbers, then those representatives are supposed to pay attention. So are the senators. 
they're they're not up there. They don't go to Columbia or go to Washington or go to a town council for that matter, just simply to do what they think is right. They're supposed to represent the people that voted for them, thus representative government. So, but but they only do so now. This this circles back around, Philip. I believe most of the of those elected only do so if they're convinced that it could cost them their seat. So at the end of the day, Philip, you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's not the number of letters. It's the number of votes. It's not the number of emails or the number of calls, although those do make a difference. I mean, I, I disagree with the notion that they don't pay attention. I think they do pay attention because if it, once the, the number – in a certain on a certain topic reaches critical mass, then they have to consider the possibility that these are people in their district that are not going to vote for them if if they choose a different path. And you know, right now, the senators, the ones in the Senate who would have to flip their vote in order for H thirty seven seventy four to pass, are not convinced that it's going to matter to them at the ballot box. And they're, they're willing to stay with the fact that they voted for the heartbeat bill. And quite frankly, you know, when you get into a primary election, how many people understand the nuances of what it means to be pro-life? I mean, you, you know, if you're in the Senate right now and you voted for the heartbeat bill, you can go out and tell your constituents that you voted for pro-life legislation, that you voted for the most restrictive pro-life legislation that has ever been in law in South Carolina because H3774 has never made it into law. So you're you're let's say you're up on the stump and people are asking you questions. Well, Senator, uh, what about your pro-life stand? We believe life should be protected. Oh, I voted for the most restrictive abortion law, the most pro-life law in the history of South Carolina. So, yes, I stand, you know, I believe in protecting life in the womb. Okay. Then the follow up question should be well, Senator, you were presented with an opportunity to vote to protect life beginning at conception. Why would you vote to protect life at six weeks, but you won't vote to protect it at conception? But the, the thing is, most people don't, they, they won't know that. Just like I was told. Um, what a, a month? Well, two or three weeks ago now, you know, I, I I put out information on the Bostock language, Bostock versus Clayton Supreme Court case that defines sex federally as being uh, not just gender, but gender identity and sexual preference. Okay, it's a, it's in federal law now that that's what that definition means in under Title Seven of the federal law of federal law because of the Bostock Clayton Supreme court decision. So I, you know, I'm, and, and I've got people coming to me saying, well, we're being told that, you know, you're, you're just being mean because we need a hate crime law. Uh, and that, that none of this is going to make any difference for churches or for Christians. Okay. And I mean this kindly, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here. I don't expect everybody to be reading Bostock versus Clayton, or I don't expect everybody to be going out and Googling articles and reading about what's happened since Bostock v. Clayton has 
it, you know, has become the law. Had the Supreme Court ruled in the way that they did. So, it's, but but I will say say this that most people don't do that, and so they're being told by their legislators, "Look, there's this is major crimes. There's nothing to see here. Why can't we do this? Why wouldn't a Christian want a person who, regardless of the reason that they're attacked?" Why wouldn't they want there to be additional penalties to protect people, particularly since religion is part of this? In other words, ostensibly, a Christian who's attacked and, and because they're a Christian, that person could have additional penalties placed on them as a hate crime if they went against Christians. Why would we deny that to other people? Well, that's a. does that sound logical to you? I mean, that's you, you have to understand people that get up, go to work every day, pay their bills, come home, be with their families, watch TV, read a book, whatever they do in the evening. They're not looking at the big picture, and they don't spend their time thinking about Bostock versus Clayton. I guarantee I could walk into a room today and say, how many of you know? Let's say 300 people, half of them activists, and I could ask the question, how many of you know what happened with Bostock versus Clayton? And they're there might be 10 hands go up in a room of several hundred. And, and it's because we we're we're in order to understand see these, these guys down in Columbia, they know this. I mean, they know what the Bostock language in that bill means, or at least uh, most of them do. And to say that people don't care about that is, is we, we need to go a step further and realize that most people don't know about it, which is why you need to listen to radio shows like this that focus on truth and politics and culture. If, if everybody just knows what's going on, they can respond and you know in a way that, that fits their moral, their character, their value system, and that's the way it's supposed to work in a representative republic like we have. Uh, you go out, make your argument. The LGBTQ community goes out, they make their argument. And which one is more compelling? Which one is more winsome? Which one gets more legislators to agree? Um, and, of course, if, if there's not enough legislators that agree with the argument that you're making, you've got the right to go out and try to elect more people that agree with you. That's the way the political system works at every level. Okay, just uh, so you get a kind of a grasp of the timeline, if uh, President Trump's going to be charged, if he's going to come to New York and surrender, uh, be booked, be have a mugshot taken, fingerprinted, and then be released, which is the process that's going to happen. Look, they're not—this idea that they're going to go down to Mar-a-Lago and drag Trump out of his house, frog march him across the front lawn, handcuffed in front of a press gaggle— uh, that's not going to happen. I, I don't think there's any way that happens. If he is charged, he will likely be given the opportunity to surrender. He has Secret Service protection. So he'll come to New York. Uh, he won't be standing in open court, likely. He'll probably go into a room somewhere, be arraigned. Um, he will. There's a possibility that he could be handcuffed to walk from the place where he's arraigned down to where uh, he would fill out the paperwork to be released. and it, it, But I doubt it. I, I don't think you're going to see the president in handcuffs. 
I don't think Alvin Bragg wants that. I think he wants it deep down. I think he knows that progressives everywhere have lived for the day when they would see Donald Trump in handcuffs. But but here's the thing. Uh, he knows that that would sensationalize things to the point. What, what, what Bragg really wants is to win this case. And so as flimsy as it is. And so he, he's not going to be doing things that's going to make it more difficult for him in, in the public eye. So it's very likely that um, it, here's, here's the timeline. Grand jury is back at it today. Either Bragg is going to present a witness to rebuff Robert Costello's testimony that was devastating for his case, um, or they're going to present charges, or both. He, they could hear a witness today, and then charges could be presented, and the grand jury would vote. After the grand jury, this is the last day for the grand jury. So something's going to happen. But charges can't be filed against the president or against anybody or made public in any way until the charges are unsealed by a judge. So even if President Trump is charged this week, law enforcement officials believe that it's unlikely that he will come to New York until next week to face the charges. So just to kind of keep you... In, in line with what's going on and pro- what's likely going to happen. All right, on a lot of, of, of woke, progressive college campuses, the adults, and, and please understand, I'm using adults in, um, in a term that means something more than chronological age. I'm talking about people that are mature, um, that have lived life long enough to have some life experience to temper whatever progressive motivations they may have. Um, and, and, and so when you hear me say the adults, because college students are technically adults, I get that. It's chronologically, um, you know, 18, we, in our society, we consider a person an adult, and most people don't go to college till they graduate from high school and they're 18 years old at that time, unless they go early. So Stanford Law School, you, you may remember that uh, they had an incident where the Federalist Society invited Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Kyle Duncan to come and speak on Stanford's campus. And, you know, the, the Federalist Society at Stanford is definitely a minority. Stanford is a woke, progressive, left-wing school. And the problem is that it turns out, we're talking about the law school, that turns out some of the finest legal minds supposedly in the country. And these are the people that are going to be sitting on courts, and these are the people that are going to be walking into courtrooms pushing for and defending progressive policies. These are going to be the people, some of them may one day be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. And they're all extremely left-wing. So... When Kyle Duncan came to speak for the Federalist Society, he was shouted down by a howling mob of LGBTQ activist students. And then the DEI administrator, the dean who is over diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's what the DEI person in a university does. They, you know, university now has to go out and hire somebody that has the responsibility to be the umpire about those issues. And so uh, Tyron Steinbach is the dean at Stanford that has the title 
diversity, equity, inclusion dean. He shows up. He calls for order. And you you would think because he's the DEI dean that what he's about to do is tell these students to knock it off and allow this judge, Judge Duncan, to be able to speak because inclusion is part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so why would you not have on a college campus somebody with a different idea? But that's not what happened. Dean Steinbach got up there and railed against the judge, lectured him about his beliefs and the way that he interpreted the law. So what happened after that is, you know, what is Stanford University going to do? What is the dean of the law school going to do? Because the dean, you know, when you're thinking about Stanford University, you've got a president, but universities are divided up into schools. That's why, you know, you you go from a college to a university. Once you have a number of different degree programs, you set up different schools within a university that put, you know, puts forth the majors that people go into in that area. So this is Stanford Law School. And so you have a dean that is the chief officer over what happens at the Stanford Law School. So Dean Steinbeck gets suspended because he comes in and instead of restoring order and getting the LGBTQ advocates to back down and let this judge be able to speak, he comes in and lectures the judge and then lets the LGBTQ advocates loose again and they chime in with the guy who's supposed to be protecting the rights of the person who was invited to speak. And so the whole thing collapses and Judge Duncan doesn't get to speak. Now, we're going to take a break and when we come back. I'm going to tell you what's happened since then, because what's happened since this debacle with this judge being shouted down at Stanford Law School is rather amazing in our woke culture. You've got uh, Dean Tyron Steinbach, who's been suspended because he didn't step in and stop the melee when the Federalist Society invited Fifth Circuit Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Kyle Duncan to speak at Stanford. Uh, You had the LGBTQ uh, XYZ, you know, hashtag, whatever, that group show up and just basically shout the speaker down. So what's happened since then is, is, is kind of interesting because the dean, Dean Martinez of Stanford Law has come out and basically told the students that they need to back off. In fact, she responded by lowering the boom in a 10-page memorandum addressed to the student body. She's decided that it's time to send the entire Stanford Law School class to re-education camp. Now, that may sound a little bit drastic, but that's essentially what she said. And in a a surprising twist to this story, the mandatory training day isn't a DEI initiative. In fact, it's the opposite. Listen listen to what she said. She said it, it will be an instructional course on how the heckler's veto is illegitimate and how one must tolerate and reckon with opposing opinions both as a virtue in and of itself, but also because one will be an appallingly 
poor lawyer unless one develops this basic mental discipline. So the adults showed up. Who would have thunk it at Stanford Law School that they would be actual adults who would say to these spoiled, woke, progressive brats that just because they have an opinion and it's in a it disagrees with the opinion of a speaker, they don't have the right to take control of a situation, shout the speaker down. This Dean, Dean Martinez comes in and says, listen, if you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be in the classroom, You, I mean, in the in the courtroom, you can't just shout down your opponent, opponent in front of a judge. They'll, they'll kick you out. You're going to have to listen to opposing viewpoints and come up with a strategy for your viewpoint to prevail. And that strategy can include simply censoring the other side. And so she's going to have a day where all these students, it is, it's mandatory for them to come. Now, what's going to be interesting is what's going to happen when they boycott, as they most surely will. I mean, they abs- you, you know good and well. Then they're gone. Well, they're out. Yeah, but, but you're not the dean. This is not Dean Miller. This is Dean Martinez. Rats. So, yeah, you know, th- this is – that that's probably what should happen, but you know, stay tuned. We don't know what's going to happen when they decide they're not going to show up. Maybe they will show up. Maybe there'll be enough, um, you know, threat behind this. They'll be told that they're going to get kicked out, or told that they'll lose their financial aid or scholarship or whatever. I I don't know. That that's yet to be seen. But listen to the demands. But before we finish up with this, I want to go back to the demands of the students. Because you want to you want to hear unreasonable, you want to hear fascist. I mean, the, these students like to refer to people on the right as being fascist, but there's nothing more fascist than what these students are demanding take place at Stanford Law. Number one, that Dean Jennifer Martinez rescind her formal apology to Judge Duncan. In other words, she was appalled that this took place. That's why she suspended. The DEI dean, Dean Steinbeck, that was supposed to take care of this. And so she issued this really well done, heartfelt apology to uh, Judge, to Judge Duncan because of the way that he was treated. So the students are upset. They want that, they want that apology rescinded. How in the world can we apologize to somebody as evil as a person who would come there and disagree with us? So number number two place permanent restrictions on what speakers the Federalist Society can invite to campus and what topics can be discussed. See, this is why this is why Dean Martinez is going to draw them all together in a room and say, listen, you don't understand. We're a place where we hear everybody's concerns. We hear everybody's argument. We don't shut down free speech. And that's exactly what they want to do. They want to be able to control. They want to be able to tell the Federalist Society what speakers they can and cannot have. And they also, on top of that, want to be able to say to the society, you can't even talk about this. If, if you want to have somebody come in and talk about gender transition, no, not unless they're for it. If they're against it, you can't have them on campus because that's hate speech. So this is, this is how crazy this thing has gotten. The, these are spoiled, brat, woke, progressive, left-wing, immature 
people who are behaving as if they're still in middle school instead of first, second, third year law school, wherever, whatever path that they're on. Now, here's the last thing that they, that, that they asked for. So let, let's see what we've got so far. You don't get to decide who speaks. We're the only ones that can decide who gets to come to campus and speak. You don't get to decide what they're going to talk about. We're the ones that decide what they're going to talk about. You can't apologize because of our behavior. You've got to rescind any apology over the fact that we shut this person's free speech down. Here's the piece de resistance. Okay. Number three, expel the school's current federal social board members, uh, uh, federal society board members. In other words, just to be sure, let's remove from among us those who would dare disagree with us to the point that they would ever invite somebody like Duncan in the first place. Kick them out. Now, that's the academic death penalty. I'm, I'm not going to stretch this too far because I, we, we have a tendency to do that on both sides of these arguments. I'm not saying that these students want them dead, but they want them academically dead. And if you think about it, that's what fascism and Marxism is all about. There's only one opinion. It can only be expressed if it agrees with the ruling authority. Anything less than what's expressed by the ruling authority is subject to being censored, which would be put in jail, the people who have that opinion, or expelled, which would, in a communist, federalist, uh, uh, fascist society, would mean you're going to achieve room temperature because you don't agree with the body politic. So this is, I, I mean, that's, that's the mindset at the most prestigious law school in the country, the people that are going to be our for our future circuit court judges, appeals court judges, uh, federal judges, Supreme Court justices, the people that are going to fill those roles for us, fill those roles, are behaving like Marxist, typical Marxist, because they've been steeped in Marxist thought and philosophy, and they think they have the right to silence anybody who doesn't agree with them. And we can be thankful for a Dean Martinez, who's the adult in the room, who's not behaving like a spurned middle schooler, but is behaving like somebody who's mature enough to rein in these people. And it remains to be seen if they'll allow themselves to be reined in. My prediction is they won't. And then the question is going to be, what happens next? We're going to follow this story. Because this is happening, it's not just Stanford Law School, it's happening all over the country on our college campuses and universities, and particularly these prestigious ones. And it's got to stop if we're going to keep any semblance of free speech open to everybody in this country. 